Hello and welcome to Magic Mike and James, episode 8 of the new and improved talking during the movie, and I am James, the co-host that doesn't have all the fancy active voices that can do uh, these snappy intros, and Mike is the other guy. I don't think I don't think anyone who's heard my intros would say that I have a great voice for it. I think I just do it anyway. That's true. Maybe I should just like get off get off my high horse or my low horse and grow some balls or something like that. Mhm. You just you just concur with that? You're not you should you should probably me. you should probably grow some balls. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I quit. Uh, but after this <laughs> stop, episode, stop stealing my bit, man. <laughs> okay. On today's episode, we are going to review Tomorrowland, and then as a follow-up segment, we are going to stop recording the podcast and continue. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're doing a short one this week, um, mainly because I fucked up. Um, I I did not uh, I did not see our film, the film we are reviewing today, Tomorrowland, in a timely manner. Therefore, I'm fresh from a viewing of it about half an hour ago. And uh, it's uh, it's really late at night now. So uh, in our uh, uh, exhausted, sleep-deprived rambling, hopefully we'll come to some kind of consensus about this film, my opinions of which I'm still kind of formulating. Yeah, yeah. We know that all the best uh, opinions on film were formed uh, within the hour of seeing it. Uh, yeah, it helps if you add booze. <laughs> but we'll, we'll just have to make do. We'll have to make do indeed. Uh, well, uh, Mike is, this is the, uh, Mike talks about art segment that's coming oh, up in like God. three seconds. <sighs> well, I'm just going to start it off by, I'm not even going to talk about it. I haven't seen this film. I just want to mention, uh, you know, we, we talked about the Palm Door a few weeks ago, or the, the Cannes Film Festival a few weeks ago, and, uh, Palm Door winner has been announced. And, uh, before the show, I tried about 50 times to pronounce the, director and the name of the film correctly and uh i'm going to totally screw it up anyway um but uh the winner was uh jacques audiar for his film depan um and mm-hmm. uh i uh obviously could not quite get into the screening of the film at the Cannes film festival lost my invitation but uh uh anyone familiar with uh, jacques audiar probably knows him uh, from his 2009 film, The Prophet, uh, Prophet uh, which I think is a fantastic movie and, and has kind of been... Actually, it doesn't really get talked about much anymore, um, so hopefully this will convince some people to revisit it. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm interested to see this film whenever it gets a stateside release, but that probably won't be for at least a few months. So Yeah, no, I'm interested in a lot of the films that came out of the can. Um, yeah, I've also always really... A- really good things about the new Todd Haynes film that came out too. And, uh, I'm a big fan of his from uh, like far from heaven and I'm not there. And so, yeah, um, I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm excited to, uh, for these films to be unleashed on the world. Uh, just like people were, no, I'm not even going to force this, uh, stupid, <laughs> stupid transition. Um, <laughs> but people were excited for a, um, remake of Stephen King's it, but a, uh, the director, Kei Fukunaga, who is known for True Detective primarily, has dropped out reportedly maybe for because they couldn't afford him, 
which I, is hilarious because he's just started directing, basically. I, I mean, I, I misspoke before the show. I think he's he's done more than one film. I know he did Sin Nombre, and uh, he also did that Jane Eyre adaptation that came out uh, a few years ago. Um, but, I mean, honestly, I did not know. This guy was not on my radar, or I really think anyone's radar, or very few at least, until True Detective. So I love how that show kind of catapulted him into a... Uh, Super to being a superstar director. Yeah, he's a director that people can't afford now. It's it's, a, it's amazing how auteurist that show was, though. I mean, it was a big movie that he made in the form of a an eight eight episodes, I believe. An yeah, it was TV series. So I don't know. It's kind of cool that one person, like one creative vision, can have so much prominence in a TV show, which is you know generally even more of a collaborative process than film already is. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, but the I don't know that many people were actually too excited for Steve for the the it remake uh, just because remakes of classic horror films are never met with immediately positive reception even if they do turn out to be good um, but seeing that Kerry Fukunaga was directing it gave some people some hope and now that he's not everyone's back to their skeptical face um, uh, in, so it'll be uh, interesting to see if this can live up to anything or who they get to replace uh carrie fukunaga i don't know i've been hearing so many stories about directors like okay honestly this is kind of like the same reaction i had when edgar wright got replaced on ant-man like i'm like well that was my reason i was interested in this film now i I could not care less now i i mean also though to be fair like how are you going to top just from an acting perspective how are you going to top tim curry as as uh, Pennywise. Oh, did you hear who they who they cast in? No, I, him? no, I didn't. They cast the main kid from We're the Millers, I think. What? Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, that seems like a terrible decision, but okay. I mean, I, at least it's not predictable. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, I, look, my reaction to those kinds of casting decisions now is like. Well, I guess we'll see because I was wrong about Heath Ledger as the Joker. I could be wrong about this. Who knows? But I'm probably not wrong about Jared Leto's the Joker. So like... no, no one's wrong about that. If, if... I will... that wasn't a ham-handed transition, I, I, that was I, an I, off-the-cuff I, comment. Just so was, you know, this is a great transition. But I will say, if, if I'm wrong about that, I will, I, I will wager, I, I, I will wager something dear to me on that performance being bad. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. No. Um. This. Oh, well, actually, this is, uh, weirdly, you're right, it is kind of a perfect transition. <laughs> yeah. Um, the I didn't even look at what we had going next. You did? The... Oh, man, I thought you, like, totally set that up, and I was... No, no, I, I'm too tired to be a, a genius uh, podcaster yeah, at this I really, point. I really fucked this up, sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, so, uh, George Miller, people don't know this, George Miller, the director of Mad Max, which we reviewed on our last episode, Mike and James, Urban Harvest, had originally been in talks, more than in talks, to direct a film, a Justice League film, in 2009 was the release date. It, but the film got axed, and there's now going to be a documentary made about the making of that movie, and the, well, the lack of making of that movie. Uh, I'm pretty interested. More I'm, just interested in the story. Here's my question to you: If if this documentary was announced six months ago, would you care half as much as you do now, since you've seen Mad Max Fury Road? Uh, well, I mean, the my viewing of my I'm not that well read on George Miller. I have seen uh, Babe Pig in the City. 
Uh, I have seen Happy um, Feet and Happy Feet 2, and I have now seen Mad Max Fury Road. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, from what I can tell, with the exception perhaps of Thunderdome, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, doesn't really seem like George Miller has made a bad movie. No, like, it doesn't. I have I, heard some some stinking things about Thunderdome, but uh, uh, but like it it just seems like he's had a kind of an on off filmmaking career. He's, he's made films in like kind of in short spurts throughout the years, but he's like insanely consistent. So I feel like he's just like this wonder, like pretty wonderful filmmaker that's just always been kind of hanging around, but it's never really the spotlight's never really been on him until. I mean, obviously, Matt with the original Mad Max films back in the day, but it, it seems like he's just been kind of operating in the shadows until, uh, you know, until now Fury Road's blown up the whole world. So yeah, oh yeah, and it's definitely it's the entire launchpad for any interest in this documentary. Yeah, um, I I am interested in the story, as I said, and I talked a little bit with you about this in the pre-show. I, I like imagining a world where a Justice League movie made by a perfectly capable, at very least, director. It came out three years before the Avengers, and what how the landscape that would how the landscape would be different between DC and Marvel, etc. Would, would you prefer a world that is more DC focused? Like, would you prefer DC to be winning the movie wars instead of Marvel right now? No, not at okay. all. Okay. Uh, because I've said this on a, on several occasions. Sans Batman, DC heroes are meh at at best. Yeah. Whereas so, Sans daredevil who i would consider the most immediate uh equivalent of batman mm -hmm. uh certainly it doesn't match up perfectly but sans someone like daredevil i still think marvel's got a lot of fun <laughs> in, in its heroes even if they're can't be in silly yeah no I, I i like marvel's heroes um i i do say i, I do our... think overall dc does better in villains um but that's not very yeah, hard with yeah. marvel they don't give themselves yeah, a high bar yeah 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 all right. I mean, I, I can see to that for the most for the most part. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I have like the cast here, um, and I'm not I'm not blown away by any any of the cast members that originally penned to play the uh, Justice League characters. Um, so it's really all because I like imagining a world where DC's sort of winning. But I guess Christopher Nolan killed this film. Yeah, which <laughs> <laughs> because. Uh, him making his definitive Batman series kind of squashed all hopes for there being two different Batmen going on simultaneously in DC films. Yeah, no, I, I think there would just be too much, like, competition. Like, people wouldn't... Why would DC or the studios behind them... Or, or you know, if I was going to make a Justice League film that's with Batman as a central character, why would I want to do so when Christopher Nolan is making the most iconic Batman trilogy of the of the era. It's true. You know, there's, there's not really something I can compete with. I wonder how many people would opt for the potential of a great George Miller Justice League film over the Nolan films. Like, just, if you could pick, if you could have your pick of history, George Miller, either, either George Miller does Justice League before Marvel does Avengers, and Chris Nolan doesn't do Batman, or we have what we have now. Um, I wonder how many people would take the prior over the latter. Yeah, no, I would definitely pick Christopher Nolan. But I would, uh, I would too. But I'm just, I, I wonder how many, how many people would, would choose oh, differently. And you know, it's not entirely as though they, the movies couldn't exist side by side, but they would, they would need to have, it would need to be Christopher Nolan's Batman. And I actually just saw a story today that 
um, Batman, ostensibly, uh, Ben Affleck's Batman will make an appearance in Suicide Squad. He would, the Batmobile was spotted on set of the oh. Suicide Squad filming, um, which doesn't make me want to see that movie anymore. No. Like, in the slightest. It almost makes me want to see it less because I'm already unimpressed with the idea of Ben Affleck playing Batman. Mm-hmm. And this is a lot of just god-awful prejudging, but damn it if I'm not skeptical. <laughs> I'm irate. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I'll, I'll feel better after I plug this uh, real, really quick. Um, so recently, yeah, I know, I talk about art, like... Uh, boring people with with art that's going to enrich their lives so the criteria <laughs> the criterion collection uh you know my uh my, my favorite company in the whole wide world uh just uh the worst company in the whole uh, wide world oh, oh my god R- really what no they're not the worst they're the, greedy this the greedy is all in get out though oh shut up I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna debate this now um so the Criterion Collection, uh, in collaboration with the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, uh, just conducted a, a very extensive 4K restoration of uh, the Apu trilogy by Satyajit Ray, which is a, a really extremely highly regarded, yet very underseen trilogy of films um, about essentially this 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 family, mainly this boy named uh, named Apu. Uh, growing up in rural India and uh, what becomes of his life, and it's it you know it's, it's a trilogy of films. Uh, Father Panchali is the first, uh, The Unvanquished is the second, and then uh, Life of Apu is the third. Um, and uh, the New Prince, which are uh, you know at, these films had been in just awful shape for decades. Uh, part of the reason why they were underseen. Uh, these new prints are going around the country now. They're in 4K. They look beautiful. I got the opportunity to see. Uh, the first film in the trilogy, Father Panchali, this weekend when I wasn't seeing Tomorrowland. Um, mm-hmm. so, sorry, Al, I wanted to seize the opportunity. And it was like, it was a pretty transcendental uh, movie-going experience. Uh, the, uh, the films are heavily inspired by Italian neorealism, so they're pretty, you know, very very slice-of-life humanistic films. Um, but they're they're really beautiful in their simplicity. Um, like James, you and I were both fans of boyhood from last year, right? Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I've seen, I told you, I don't remember which of the trilogy I've seen, but having seen it, I definitely understand where you're going with this. Having seen at least one of them, I understand where you're going with this comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not the first one to make it. Critics compared boyhood. One of, one of the many films that boyhood was compared to, because I think people were just kind of gra- like trying to grasp onto any sort of cinematic, uh, precursors that they could, uh, was the Apu trilogy by Ray. And honestly, aesthetically, the films are very similar in their subject matter, like this, in, in their, the social situations, they're very, very different, but mm-hmm. the, they're both, they both kind of capture these human rhythms and um, kind of make them relatable for everybody. It's that empathy machine that Roger Ebert equates the cinema to. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to plug this. Um, I, I, I love Father Panchali. I actually have not seen the other two installments of the Apu trilogy. I couldn't get to those showings this weekend. Um, so I'm actually going to have to check that out when Criterion eventually comes out with their Blu-ray. Um, but I just wanted to plug it um, in in case anyone listening has the opportunity to see these films in the theater. Um, I could not recommend it more. They're honestly they're they're once in a lifetime movies, and they've been really underseen until until now. So um, 
yeah, I'm ho- hopefully more people will see them as a result of this restoration, and I, I think that would be fantastic. They're beautiful, beautiful films. Well, the first one at least is beautiful. I'm sure the other two are also beautiful. No, I recommend it too. Don't worry. I don't want to come off as a completely art-hating host of the show you, or anything it, like that. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. I try to branch it out a bit from uh, what's come out even in e- this week or even in my own lifetime. You know, there's a whole world of cinema all it, it, that that's been going on for over a century now. So, you know, I have to catch up. Yeah. No, it's it's fine. Um, and we're going on though out of art, into Brad Bird, the director of wonderful films such as... Brad Bird's uh, made some art. He's made yes, quite a bit he of has. Art. Man, man, he has. Uh, in my last podcast, I called him the greatest animated filmmaker ever, and, and then Mike expressed chagrin that I was doing so over Hayao Miyazaki. I mean, really? But... Like, I, how can that even... He's made three wonderful animated films. It's true. It's true. I, I, Hayao Miyazaki <laughs> certainly has, has the longer resume. Decades of masterpieces that yes. anyone would be, any single one of them would be the best film of any other animation director, except maybe Brad Bird. <laughs> there. So, um, yeah, it's it's true. It's, there's there's more discussion to be had on that topic uh and more discussion to be had on brad bird's latest film tomorrowland which is not an animated film and it is not it is not art either it is not not art it uh i'm glad we're sort of on the same page there Um, yeah i'm just gonna come yeah we haven't we again we did a good job not discussing what our feelings and probably because mike only saw this a half hour ago so we haven't had much time to do so went a whole 30 minutes without telling you how i feel yeah, you you're doing real good. Uh, I will agree with you that this film this film has some problems. So, but uh, first off, this film not an animated film. I think it's only Brad Bird's second not animated film that he's directed right. after um, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. Yep. And he's working with a uh, scriptwriter too. He hasn't worked with before, which. I don't know if that may be some of the some of the issues uh, affecting it. Yeah. Um, I'm. I'm. But he should never work with the screenwriter again. <laughs> yeah. So Tomorrowland is about a um, a young girl, smart girl, uh, who gets sort of recruited by this uh, future robot to join this join this beautiful land where basically people invent stuff to make the other the real world earth better uh so engineers scientists they just they pluck them up they give them these pins that when they touch them they go to the beautiful land and then they can just build whatever they want um and then george clooney is played someone who's sort of jaded by this whole topic and then they sort of have to band together to save the world uh it's it's very even in that is comparing to all his other movies is incredibly shallow so. Yeah. Um, also, you know, I just want to say this much. Yeah, uh, last week, I don't think I did give the plot synopsis for Fury Road, but, you know, I felt like I could. You know, I felt like that was the film. Because I always get caught up on the plot synopsis of films. I can never really... I, I always get really oh, long-winded. Yeah. Uh, Fury Road is so streamlined and so simple. I could have gotten it. I think I could have. Um, I'm, I'm. Thank you for taking the lead this week, because the, the plot to Tomorrowland is an absolute mess uh, the the trajectory of the plot is is so messy so i'm i'm happy i, I would have gotten lost in this for 10 or 15 minutes 
just describing yeah. it. So thank you for taking the lead on that. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I have my strong suits. I what I I noticed immediately. I've never seen a I've never seen a Bradbird movie or or really any like major blockbusters start. Well, not never. I always say never, but this blockbuster, this big Bradbird movie, it started off so weak and is it was so hard to recover from that with the the cheesy narration i i didn't i don't know that i really liked the narration at all and then going even further to have this flashback to a young george clooney character who honestly wasn't that good of a child actor and then they no. had this this toothless action um where he's trying to fly in his jetpack and it's like oh is he gonna fall and die no, he's not going to fall and die. I hate... And they do this a lot. They do this sort of toothless action where, you know, it's... The film tries to get you to believe that characters are in danger when you know they're not. So all of the action just feels like there's no stakes, so I can't get into it. And that definitely happened in the, in the early going, and I was not... After the first... It's a much more extreme version of what you felt in while watching Fury Road that you saw something that you didn't qu couldn't quite get on board with and you were skeptical. But I saw something I couldn't quite get on board with uh, at all, and then I was like, okay, now Brad Bird, it's up to you to try to pull me out of this. And honestly, didn't do so hot. Um, I agree for the most part. I had a slightly different experience than you, though. Um, honestly, for the first maybe even the whole first 45 minutes or hour of this film, I actually was on board. Cheesy, okay. cheesy, yes. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. give you cheesy. I'll give you, you know, kind of toothless action. That's a good way to put it. But that's not... I mean, for example, in those sequences, I, did, I feel like the movie knew that you're never really going to think that that kid's going to die, certainly. Um, I... I I was intrigued by this premise because I wanted to know where it was going. It, it kind of did this wonderful slow reveal. It didn't exposit anything. It wasn't, it didn't come out. It didn't tell you everything the film was going to be focused on right from the beginning. And I actually really was, you know, with the logic of a kid's film going mm -hmm. along with this, I really wanted to know where it was going. Um, my experience by the end of this film was a, severe i'm sorry for being vulgar in a review of a children's film but a pretty pretty extreme case of cinematic blue balls um oh. the the likes of which i hadn't felt before uh, 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 i i'd felt before but often some foggy distance and then i saw the screenplay credit of damon lindelof and it all came rushing back to me because damon oh. lindelof is the main writer uh, was the main writer, uh, one of the main writers on the television show Lost, and uh, oh, the God. the more uh, the more I thought about it after seeing that credit on my drive home, the more I realized that all almost all of the narrative problems I had with this film were narrative problems I had with Lost, and almost every single thing that Damon Lindelof has written. Um, because I think that he fancies himself as a wonderful audience manipulator, someone who knows when to reveal what information when, and uh, how to string people along for an ultimate final reveal. And uh, consistently, every single time I have seen a film written by him, he has screwed it up. He has ruined 
my genuine interest in, in what he has to offer and completely let me down. So uh, for me, it, it, most of the problems I had with this film, I'm going to blame on the screenplay, not necessarily the dialogue, but in, like I said before, the trajectory of the plot, which began very for me at least very promising i agree with you the narration didn't work so well some of the execution is questionable but uh, at least from a a narrative perspective i was engaged i was interested i was ready to see what this world is all about and i i I can't express okay that's a bit dramatic i can't express I, i was very let down though um it was it was by the end i was pretty frustrated and and I, I felt like I lost hold of something that could have been actually a really cool movie directed by a, a wonderful visual stylist. I think Brad Bird is at least firing on all cylinders as a director here. No, I was gonna if I was gonna defend Brad Bird pretty hard. I, yeah, yeah, no, I'm 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 gonna be with you on that. I I, I think he did a for for what it's worth. I, I, noting, of course, he took part in writing the screenplay, and also that editing and pacing is also things that the director needs to take into consideration as well as the actual editor of the film. Um, I, I do think for the most part, he did a pretty standout job directing Tomorrowland. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like he, he did what he could. I, but you know, I have always said, and I can't, I, I can't let Brad Bird off the hook that you, you need a director needs just to take hold of people when they think they're getting out of line. You know, uh, David Fincher didn't let Aaron Sorkin run wild, but say Ridley mm-hmm. no, Scott I, I, did I, I, let, uh, um, did let uh, Cormac mm-hmm. McCarthy run wild. So let Damon Lindelof run wild too. Cause Damon Lindelof, I think at least co-wrote Prometheus. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. So I, I will defend Brad Bird and what he did, but what he didn't do was enough to, with this, uh, Damon Lindelof script. Uh, I, I, uh, it's weird. I want to. I, I sort of want to know exactly where it it lost you. If it was just like the big reveal with oh Hugh Laurie's in this movie, and mm-hmm. I've it's funny Hugh Laurie's uh, American accent is so good that I think his British accent is fake. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's great. No, Hugh Laurie is just he's just talking in this movie, so and I'm like. <laughs> No, that's not. He, he did sound like he was putting on. At the, you know what, though? I think he maybe was putting on evil British. I think he was. Oh, okay. I'm not to. Okay, so. I don't think that that should be considered a spoiler because from the beginning, he's pretty much not. A, he's not. He's not framed as a nice man. No, he's not. So. Um, he's uh, pretty much the grumpy. Uh... He has questionable motivations, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So. It, Suffice it to say, he's not. He's not a. He doesn't have a heart of gold. Um, yeah, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if it was in his his big moment that you lost that you that you lost the the script or you lost the movie. For me, it was a lot of just stuff throughout. Uh, and honestly, the the ending the ending thing didn't bother me as, as much as it seems to bother other people. So. Oh, really? Oh yeah! yeah. Oh, okay. the ending is okay. It looks like we could have some good discussion about this. So, um, well, my sort of overall recommendation would be to uh, see Mad Max uh, yeah. again. And but if uh, you're taking your child or whatever, and you think that a great movie is too much for him to understand, uh, then 
and well, there's nothing else coming your, out this week. Don't so. take your kid to Mad Max, James. No, that's what I'm saying. Don't yeah. take your kid to Mad Max. I don't care if they understand it. Don't don't take them to Mad Max. It's not a kid's <laughs> do, do, no. Yeah, <laughs> no, and there's nothing really else take, coming out this week, so you might as well take them to Tomorrowland. Might as well take them to Tomorrowland, although it's kind of an interesting counterpoint to Mad Max. Um, this film. Oh, it is. I yeah. keep hearing Tomorrowland being talked about as uh, a film about science fiction optimism, which is... I, <laughs> kind of an interesting way to think about it, especially no, I was actually something like Mad Max, which is very post-apocalyptic and bleak. Uh, it, like, in fact, it's almost an answer to Mad Max. No, it, it is. It tries to be. It tries vision. to be. I, yeah. I find it funny that if you think about it, though, you call it you call it optimistic. If you think about it, though, this is Brad Bird at his most cynical, yeah. which is hilarious because it's still naively optimistic. It is, but. It's, I don't know, this, this cynicism is, is so weird. Like, it's so, this film is very uh, black and white in its view of humanity, if that makes it, which it kind of in, in and of itself is pessimistic to me. Like, the idea that humans will screw themselves over and and when they learn and become self-aware of this they will continue to do nothing and and uh, just conceive and and just uh and just uh, uh surrender to death basically yeah so the big the big hitch in this movie happens when um the big twist uh, the, so the premise is that George Clooney and ev- everyone who knows about Tomorrowland knows that the world's going to end basically basically Mad Max is going to happen um, it, yeah. in like sixty hours or something, like everything's gonna no, go to it's, shit. It's, it's, two gonna... Mu- it's about two months in the film. They give they, they give or take about. Oh months. yeah. Okay, yeah. We I don't know was... why. We don't know why. It's unclear, and that's actually a question that's never answered in the film. Yeah, you don't you don't quite know why. I guess that's just what's gonna happen. No, you don't know um... why at all. Like it's, I mean, you know, they imply things like you know global warming and overpopulation and and, and world problems violence. that happen yeah yeah, yeah 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 violence but i guess and... it just all goes no and th- and i guess that actually is the premise of mad max that uh, some someday next week just next week's is everything that they talk about that is going to ba- happen with the world eventually happens on the same day so it's kind of, it's kind of exactly. funny that that's it's, what it's they're all... describing yeah here. yeah that's exactly what they're describing which is it, it kind of reminds me of that bit from South Park where uh, they talk about global warming and uh, then everyone starts running and they're like, oh my god, global warming's coming over there! And then like they run away <laughs> from global warming. Which isn't a tangible thing you run away from. It's a tangible yeah. thing, exactly. So uh, this film's approach to uh, global disasters kind of reminded me of, of that. <laughs> and then... Uh, so they, they ha- have to find out how to stop it, and they find out that, um, it's being caused because uh, this system that was originally created to warn people of the apocalypse by sort of, like, putting the idea in their head is actually making them crave the apocalypse. And there's a line that Hugh Laurie gives in his e- evil British accent about, you know, a post-apocalyptic video games and movies and stories, and it's people that sort of enamored with this idea instead of afraid of it and willing to do something about it, like become an engineer. Um, it's... I'm getting the impression that Hugh Laurie's speech is where the film completely lost you. Um, well, you well, that's what, well, that's what I'm saying that I didn't... I was wondering if that's where it lost you because a lot of people not, were, I, were I, bothered by that. I actually liked his speech. Um, 
because I, th- I felt like it gave him a perspective that's at least like relatable and semi-sympathetic. Like I could, I think we've all known people who, uh, even when they're aware that something bad could and maybe will happen, they're just resigned to it and don't try to fight and don't try to fix it and make things better. Um, because I do think that's kind of an infectious mindset. Um, and I, I think the film is admirable in trying to sort of combat that and saying, yes, these are problems. How do we solve them? How do we make the world a better place? And kind of reintroducing this like fifties era, like optimism into science again, which I, yeah. you know, it, it's simplistic, but it's a kid's movie. I actually think that's kind of an admirable cause. Um, I don't, think that the right approach was to say that everyone's being infected by negative juju energy beams from this sci-fi world and that's why we're all sad um okay all right that's that's (laughs) because the from where i from what i had heard everyone was really they thought that the end that hugh laurie's speech ending was basically too preachy and they you know some people have thought this was like all about like global warming and i'm like how do you even bring that up with a straight face uh yeah so i was prepared to defend it on that level no no no. uh, i i actually do defend it to an extent although i will say uh it does call to mind a line from a much better brad bird film uh the incredibles when the main villain of that film just goes you got me monologuing again you sly dog (laughs) yeah um yeah, maybe a trite moment, but I, I felt it was, I felt it was at least functional and gave the villain perspective. You know, it it at least brought some clarity to a final third to a third act that is pretty damn near, not incomprehensible, but just um, just really really messy. I hate I hate falling back on the criticism. It's a mess, but I mean they just kind of let all the threads just you know unravel and and fall loose in the third act of this movie it did not come together in any satisfying way for me um the part where it started losing me i think was when we have the three main protagonists essentially uh george clooney's frank uh uh brit robertson's casey and athena played by raffi cassidy i believe mm-hmm. she's a brand new i think actress. so um and it kind of became the story of Athena and Frank squabbling about things that I never actually got to see and character development that I never actually got to witness and Britt Robertson kind of standing there as a, uh, as a mitigating third party and me going, wow, this dynamic's really not working. This is a weird kind of crew to follow and I'm not really enjoying myself. And then uh, it, 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 that was kind of a forewarning. And then when we had to transport to Paris so that we could take a rocket ship to space so that we could travel across dimensions to get to Tomorrowland. And then I checked my watch and there was only a half an hour left in the movie. And this was the first time I had been to Tomorrowland for real. Yep. I knew there was a big problem. (laughs) No, I, okay. I, we're in more agreement than I, than I thought for sure. Yeah. Because their, because their relationship didn't work. Problems. Uh, Yeah. uh, what did work for me, I loved the, um, what was it, Casey? Yeah, Kay- I love Casey's um, 
optimism combating yeah. with George Clooney's cynicism. Me that too. was such a good that dynamic was a for me. Great there dynamic. I and you know what you said that narration at the beginning annoyed you. I really didn't mind it so much. Maybe because they were still playing off one another in that narration. At the very least, I just think it was kind of hammy. It was, it was, James, it was, but I'm more or less forgiving of some stuff like that in a kid's film. Not saying that I, I don't think that a, someone, especially like Brad Bird, who works for Pixar, who does not condescend to kids at all. Um, not exactly, that I, Not yeah. that I don't want to expect more, but that wasn't going to be a huge deal breaker for me in a movie like this. Um but, but yeah, have... I'm used to the Brad Bird that deals with complex topics like what is a soul? Do people <laughs> die? You know, <laughs> or fuck, even just even just a wonderfully balanced dynamic between a family of superheroes, like how they it, just the the human nuance in those even ridiculous, crazy scenarios. That's kind of what defines Brad Bird for me, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's a very warm director, and I always kind of I don't know. He's got an eye for. Or an eye and an ear for the way people talk and interact. Um, and while I, I felt like I got that in sp- like spurts here, it was really lacking. And that's maybe why I, the film lost momentum for me. Um, I will say, though, I, w- I want to give major credit to Britt Robertson because I think that she did a fantastic job. Uh, she played a fantastic role as Casey. I, I want Britt Robertson to have a big career after this movie. <laughs> Yeah, no. Even though I'm not a fan of the movie overall, I thought she did fantastic. I want to see her in more stuff. I I've literally never heard of her before this film. I hadn't either, and I think she played her role to a T, exactly what you expected to be. Um, and she did she did throw her own like spins in there. As I said, she played that naive role just so good. Like I am, I want this to work. It's going to work. And then George Clooney came in and was like, No, this place is a sham. Uh, Tomorrowland. It's a uh, what you got was an invitation to a party that got canceled. Yeah, I thought that was a, a <laughs> great line. That's there. a good line. That's actually a very good line. That's very. Uh, wow, I think we're done. I think I think that's the movie summed up in a sentence. <laughs> the whole movie is an invitation to a party that got, got canceled. That's beautiful. Uh, wow. Yeah, well, the you know it's true. There wasn't really a satisfying conclusion. No, to the not film. not at all. By the way. Um, because uh, Casey was my favorite character in the film. Um, d- y- what did she do in the end? Like, think like she had no role in the climax of this movie. She, the only thing she did was discover the d- nature of something. Right. She which... discovered she discovered the nature of something when she was essentially giving up, and and she kind of had a flash like Eureka moment. Um, and yeah, which it doesn't that doesn't like give me a lot of connection with the character at all. Uh, you know, to say, like, oh, I figured this out at the last second. It's like, great, but what yeah. have you done before, you know? Yeah. By the way, if you, you know, it's talking about kind of Brad Pitt. Uh, Brad Pitt. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think we that. said Brad enough, and then you were thinking of smarmy, attractive actors. And of, you're course, like, of course yeah. I am. I make, it must have mixed up the wires in my head. Um, <laughs> but, no, I mean, speaking of some of Brad Bird's, uh, sort of deeper and even more philosophical themes in his other films. I do think that e- even in this, he was hinting at something about determinism and, and knowing your fate and how that affects how you respond to it. Um, but it didn't really resolve itself in any kind of satisfying way. That's any more deep than we make our own destiny. 
which is yeah, that, really trite in and of itself. But I mean, I because th- those questions were raised a few times and actually uh, illustrated a few in a few instances very cleverly visually. You know, it, it, that some of the characters occasionally see themselves doing things a few seconds before they happen, and mm-hmm. I, then they still don't stop it. From still happening. don't stop yeah. it from happening. And I'm like, well, that's really interesting. What is this going to pay off in any way? And unfortunately, it doesn't. Except to say, we make our own destiny, which is no, the Terminator. It's, funny that, it's the Terminator Two ending, basically. No, it's funny that you should that you brought up the South Park episode because I was thinking, like, after the movie ended, I was like, what are they just going to do that whole we're going to make make Nikki it right? right. <laughs> I, I was waiting for that montage. Um, yeah, and then they decide, no, this is gay. Let's go back they, to the, the pile. But no, instead they they ended on an Apple commercial. Oh, yes, they did. They, no, I've seen so many commercials about become an engineer or, or I, I, save see, the world this way. I, I've seen this Apple commercial about 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 artists and, and savants and, you know, understated geniuses who people think are crazy. But God damn, they're going to change the world. And uh, I mean, what a I don't know what a disrespectful note to the audience to end on that. Like, I, that's I mean, that is the. D- disgusting sugary syrup on top of this like shit Sunday. I can't <laughs> that's the second Sunday analogy I've made I needed to stop doing that but no that was th- like to me that was disrespectful to just say it's just have this vague idea of a better tomorrow be the, the satisfying conclusion to this movie yeah and it, yeah it's a completely vague idea and it's not it's also vague like what they're gonna do to make it that way they're just sort of like, oh, we've established that it's going to be better. Well, how? Also, I mean, just from a technical perspective, by the way, so and not to spoil too much here, but like the people are transported to Tomorrowland with the same coins that uh, that Casey had at, at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and from my from my understanding, those coins basically just let you look. And yeah, they didn't it. really let you they do don't let you anything. Do anything, and in fact, you're still in the real world. And you know, so if you walk and you hit a wall in the real world, regardless of whether or not it's in Tomorrowland, you hit that wall. You're just seeing a commercial. So the movie literally ended with these characters watching a commercial for Tomorrowland. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, yeah. So I, I don't. No, I, I like that you said. Uh, that Brad Bird doesn't condescend to children because this movie totally does. It says now kids go to school and study it hard really and does. and I think of a movie go. like like Ratatouille, which almost which deals with sort of vaguely similar themes of be, of changing and, the way you are to become a better person or, or fighting through these. Yeah, exactly. Being an artist, fighting through these sort of like limitations you have. You know, the right. movie starts out with saying, "I want to be a chef, but I'm a rat." It's different perspective here looking at a film like ratatouille that complete it has sort of a, a similar message that you could deliver to children but delivered in such a, a much more tactful way that doesn't condescend well yeah it, it deals with here's the thing it, it deals with genius and improving the world in in really vague broad terms in which it, it, it doesn't really engage with them at all it just kind of hints at this you know this vague idea of of you know seeing the seeing the world that could be and making it a reality and being that innovator and that genius and it's like that's not there's I, i'm more interested in seeing that process than to have 
you know, Brad Bird and Disney jerk off about it. You know, it's like that. That's not a compelling thing to watch for me. So uh, to me, I guess this movie omitted what would actually be the, the concrete foundation of the, the point it's trying to get across. No, I, I wonder, I have a similar idea. I mean, it wouldn't be a kid's movie, but I wonder if it would be a better movie if the world just ended. Well, I'm kind of wondering, I feel like, I mean, as many times through this, I I question whether this premise was really intended to be a kid's movie. Um, Yeah, because it's... There are a lot of deaths in this movie, by the way. A lot of people who are not only killed, but vaporized completely. And it's um, so just jarring when that happens. Every like, time what? that happened, I'm like, they had a family. <laughs> like a wife, kids probably. Oh my like... god. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can see that it... enough in like, the Avengers and stuff. But, I mean, this is a kids movie and it's all up close. And I'm just like, holy shit. And then she's, yeah, there's some like security guard who just gets vaporized by, or police officer, yeah. He's a, it's a, it's a hardworking police officer just investigating like what happened at a, a uh, what is it? A nerd store. Uh, there was an explosion, yeah. and he shows up and is like, "Hey, what's going on here?" He's like, "Well, I'm gonna vaporize you." <laughs> you ever watched Rick and Morty? Uh, no. There's a wonderful bit of the first episode where uh, they're traveling through dimensions, and uh, Rick and Morty are being chased by these like these bug security guards, and uh, 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 Rick, the scientist, just goes, "It's okay to shoot them, Morty. They're just robots." And then. Uh, and then, so Morty shoots one, his leg gets cut off, and he just starts bleeding profusely. He's just like, oh my god, John's bleeding to death, someone call his wife and children! <laughs> She's like, they're not robots, Rick! He's like, they're bureaucrats, Morty, I don't respect them, just keep shooting! <laughs> that's that's good. So, I mean, oh. my point being, <laughs> sorry, I was to that, um, I don't get, there's, what do I care if they're robots, like, I, I, I can't connect to anything if they're just robots. I don't even, at that point in the movie, I don't even know whose robots they are or why they're after them in a malevolent way. It's not, it's literally just the plot needs opposition, so here it is. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, when you learn the revelation at the end, it makes sense narratively, but like, I can't, I don't, I'm bored. I am bored by that kind of just blunt antagonism that. Oh, and, and I was bored by it too because uh, I was bored by it too because after the the uh, the house scene, I was pretty convinced that they weren't going to be killed by these guys. So it, it went back to that toothless action thing we were talking about that these guys would, you know, these robots would they could kill anyone else, but they wouldn't be killing the main character. So I wasn't engaged yeah. with it. I was bored just sure. like you were. But I mean, that kind of goes with anything. Uh, that kind of goes with anything like this, you know. You know they're not going to kill the main character in the first third of the film. Um, but, well, but of course, I, sure. I, but I'm I mean, get, in a movie, right, right, like... no, no, no. But I'm agreeing with you that because there was nothing else there, there's nothing else playing out, or nothing I was learning about these characters. That's just kind of wasted space on the screen. Then exactly, there's, there's yeah. no real. I completely agree with that. Um, and the movie honestly could use with could have used a little trimming. Like it, it was more than man, two hours. It was two hours and ten minutes. I don't know why. I that. The number of steps that we have to go through as audience members to fucking get to Tomorrowland for real, not counting the George Clooney prologue, uh, insane. I don't – like I had to – like I, I don't usually check my watch during films, but I, I just checked mine when they finally got to Tomorrowland just, just so I can know 
how long I, I felt like I'd been there forever. And it turns out the movie was was three quarters of the way over. So I, I, I was yeah that that whole surprised. Eiffel Tower rocket ship stuff. Why was, was that necessary? Why like it, okay, it was so... only necessary for uh, stupid reasons, and that was to say that there was like a secret spot where all these great inventors uh, went, and then the, they built this rocket ship. And and that was seriously just to further the stupid ideas uh, that the uh, that Damien Lindelof had to bring to the movie. Uh, by the way, if the Eiffel Tower, um, the base of the Eiffel Tower, just spontaneously opened up into a giant gaping tech wormhole, <laughs> launched a rocket out of it, how many people do you think would die? Oh, yeah. rockets are like a big cause, deal. Because tactfully, everyone seemed to move out of the way just in time. Um, and then the rocket goes up, comes back down, uh, it transports to another dimension, and it actually sends out an EMP, and all the lights in the whole city go out. And I, I know this is the wrong mindset, but all I was thinking was, imagine all the children's hospitals that now have no power. Oh yeah, the big that big thanks. EMP. I'm like, what the fuck thanks, is happening in this thanks scene? Thanks to our heroes. Like, I'm sorry, I don't normally pay that much attention to collateral damage during during at least like Marvel films. I just wasn't prepared in this Disney uh, film for children how much collateral damage and human life needed to be sacrificed. <laughs> or uh, for to Britt Robertson tomorrow. For Britt Robertson yeah. to realize that everyone's being injected with negative thoughts and needs to be uh, resurrected from their cynicism. Um, no, it, but, okay. I, I judge these sort of like minus what could be seen as like minuscule plot holes or collateral damage in completely unnecessary scenes. Because if it had to be in the movie, I can forgive you know some things that, like that, like collateral damage. If the scene had to be there, then it, that's what has to happen. You know, people need to die. Uh, this scene had no business being in the movie. They could have got to Tomorrowland in some less convoluted way. Well, and I honestly felt like I, honestly by that point, I felt like I'd already experienced five different films, and I hadn't even gotten to the the name of the movie yet. Like like at one point, it's a road movie with uh, you know. With Britt Robertson and uh, uh, and George Clooney. Athena, George Clooney or Athena oh. earlier. Yep. Um, before that, it was a mystery film. Before that, it was like a dysfunctional family movie. Before that, it was like a, a '50s period piece with Brad, with you know uh, George Clooney as a child. I, I like I couldn't. I, I felt like I'd been through the wash with like five different genres already um so nothing cohered at all um i've been really negative uh, these last few minutes uh, i don't want that to overshadow uh, aside from Britt robertson my other main praise of the film which is brad pitt's visual direction because i brad, think that brad bird's visual direction Bro, did i oh my god <laughs> you can leave these in by the way oh i'm going to <laughs> <laughs> you you deserve this after making us stay up this late. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. That's what I'm, I'm telling you. I, I owe you. You you can leave those in. But yeah, um, Brad Bird's visual direction. His visual direction, I, I really thought came very close to being a saving grace of the of the movie for me, um, it, because he directs his live action like he directs his animation. It's kinetic. It's uh, it's fast. It's got trajectory, but it's also beautifully composed. Like he's one of the few i mean like we live in an age where i don't i feel like a lot of directors 
don't really understand or at least don't utilize visual components of cinema. They like doing a lot through dialogue Mm -hmm. and holy crap. Can he like put an image together? Can he utilize all parts of the frame? Can he, does he understand the dynamic of like things entering or leaving the frame in inventive ways or of just even just illustrating an idea visually? Um, I mentioned the um, kind of the characters seeing themselves three seconds in the future at different points uh, yeah, at, at a certain point in the film, uh, mainly mm-hmm. in the third act. Um, the, the way that's like, even the way that fights are choreographed are invented and fun and cool in a way that like, I think a kid even would be legitimately entertained by um, like, and, and this is why like, I don't like, I, I don't condescend to, Oh, would a kid enjoy it? In in my estimations of kids' movies, I I feel like any one worth its salt would be entertaining to me just as well as to a kid. Um, if I'm judging this film visually, I I was pretty enthralled. Um, save for the climax in which I think all trajectory gets lost. I think that all the the threads, like I said, all the threads fall loose. Um, but uh, man, I I just goddamn it, Brad Bird can Brad Bird can convey things visually in a way that I, I think is pretty rare. And I think that uh, it's a, it's a virtue that has been bestowed uh, that, that he's exercised because of his animation and his history in animation. So, um, Oh yeah. I mean, this is the same guy who did the, the opening tracking shot in Ratatouille. Uh, well, I, I think that's I, I right. Loosely using opening. And I know that tracking shots are a lot different when they're, it's an animated film. So there's a lot less technical it, stuff that goes into yeah, it, but the direction yeah. still needs to be there. You still are juggling a bunch of visual components. So it's still valid. And there's also a pretty beautiful tracking shot in this film. Uh, essentially Casey's first trip through Tomorrowland uh, done. I believe. Oh yeah. I believe entirely in one shot. Although I, I thought I, so. I mean, there was, I believe probably a few like Birdman esque edits in it. I think there are a few bits I know. So like, okay, that's probably an edit, but mm-hmm. I couldn't actually point out any hard cuts. Um, at least not from what I could tell. So uh, yeah, that was some just beautiful visual composition and with the moving camera. No, um, I, I loved that. And I loved how it brought the audience to this commercial and made us believe it. And then brought in George Clooney to say, no, you've been lied. To. You've been lied to. And that was actually a really effective revelation for me. It I was, was like, yeah. Wow this thing that was actually used probably to a certain extent to advertise this movie was a lie, but what are you going to replace it with? <laughs> uh, not so, not so impressive. So in that sense, it does kind of feel like a fuck you. Um, but it, the way that was pulled off, see, that was an example of stringing the audience along and then throwing them for a curve and, and it being effective. I, I responded very well to that. Um, but no, I mean, just throughout the, and even in some of the less flashy moments, I, I think Brad Bird really, shows his stuff as a visual filmmaker um so it I, that is one of my main uh one of the main things i have to give credit to this film for and and re- honestly reading the other reviews for tomorrowland it seems like a lot of people are uh who the people who are negative on it which it, it everyone seems to be pretty split down the middle yeah um so it's you, you know there's certainly a lot to to like but anyone who's negative does also have to they've all been putting this disclaimer that by the way, Brad Pitt is doing. Oh Brad my Bert. god! <laughs> Why? Why am I doing this three times? Jesus! Oh man! I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, uh, Brad Bird is really firing on all cylinders here, directorially. Um, and there I, is I have no to, justice uh, in this global uh, war. Uh, <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> 
but yes, I agree with that assessment. I think Brad Bird did a fantastic job. I think uh, Britt Robertson was uh, was wonderful. Um, and hell, even George Clooney gave a lot of depth uh, to uh, his character. I thought, even though we don't really get to see that transition from that hopeful you know child to the you know disheveled uh, you know curmudgeon that we see later in the film. Uh, you know, I, I thought it's a uh, you know, it, those elements were effective. It, it's mainly the, quite literally, the, the storytelling, the plot that I took issue with. And it was pretty, but it, it did a lot to turn me off of, especially the final act of this film. Definitely, yeah. The final act fell through hard. Um, and it, I'm glad that it wasn't the Hugh Laurie stuff. Like, No, it wasn't. I'm really no. glad. No, no, no. Um, it, it wasn't. Although, I mean, you know, do I think he was the strongest villain no, strong. Yeah, and fine. Certainly could have done better, um, but that stuff didn't derail me. As and and in fact, I actually that speech that I've I haven't heard any, uh, I haven't heard the negative comments toward that speech. But that was one of the aspects I actually enjoyed. Well, at I least thought it was an interesting in adding a dynamic criticism of you know because it was valid and the, the apocalypse. Like I wasn't watching it and thinking, wow, he's being an evil villain and taking some time aside to monologue for. The, the main characters in the audience. It seemed like he was actually asserting a point of view that, that I could actually agree with uh, more than I was comfortable admitting. Um, Definitely. Which is a cool, like, which is a cool feeling, or it's at least it, it gets you to look at villains differently when you can do that with their point of view. So I, no, it, it honestly, it was kind of a saving grace for his character, for me, um, that, that, that added new dimension to him and actually kind of made him almost an ass, an asset of this film as well. Um, before we wrap up, I'm not sure how much how much more there is to discuss. But, oh no, we're about to uh, wrap up. That's I, I I do want to uh, draw attention uh, to. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you noticed, James, that Casey's younger brother was uh, was Pierce Gagnon. Was Pierce G- Gagnon, who um, has not aged a day from when he played that demonic child in in Looper. Yeah, in he Looper, hasn't aged at all, <laughs> which is really creepy. I. I'm not gonna lie, and and um, my my secret real ending for this movie is uh, that we find out the reason the world got destroyed is because uh, Pierce Gagnon uh, re- got shot in the mouth and realized he had superpowers, and <laughs> and then and, became the Rainmaker, yeah. and became the Rainmaker. <laughs> I was wondering if you were gonna bring up Pierce Gagnon because I, I recognized him immediately I, having I, liked I this too. performance. No, yeah. I, I literally I've seen Looper. I actually don't know if I've seen it all the way through since I watched it in theaters three years ago. Um, I, I I also recognized him immediately. I'm like, oh oh my god, that fucking kid. I know that face. And 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 then when we started getting talks of apocalyptic uh, of of an apocalyptic fate befalling the world, I'm like, oh god, oh no. I, I know what happens. <laughs> He's it's, it's the same kid. So the same thing's gonna happen. Oh man! So this oh. this movie this movie is but one in the same universe of uh, Tomorrowland, Looper, and Mad Max. Confirmed. I mean, it's... yeah, I know it's it's Tomorrowland uh, is the start, and then it leads into Looper, and Looper causes Mad Max. So parents, if you're listening to this, you really must take your child to all three of these films in order for them to experience. Well, at appropriate points in their lives, though, you take uh-huh. them to Tomorrowland as a child, teenager, show them Looper, and then their adult, let them see. Mad Max by buying the Blu-ray for for Christmas, yeah. And they'll get the whole experience of how the apocalypse happened. Yeah, and uh, you can you can weave tales of it over the 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 pyre that used to be your home, 
in the barren wasteland after we all destroy ourselves in, in two months. Um, or next week, or depending next... on what movie you're watching. Yeah, of course. Um, James, would you like to add anything anything to this discussion of Tomorrowland? I still love Brad Bird. I, that doesn't add anything, did, but I wanted to put that on the record. He did nothing to dissuade me from from thinking Brad Bird is a great filmmaker. Um, he made a not-so-great movie. It's, I, it's, it's easily a, his worst movie. It's easily his worst movie. I wouldn't even call it a bad film. It's no. Not, it's not a bad movie. It just... There are... it. Going back to it, it left me with blue balls. It left me with some <laughs> blue balls. Um, but, it, I mean, his his input from what I could tell was really impressive. Um, I'm still excited to see what he does next. Be it. Oh wait, no, what he's doing next is the Incredibles too. So yeah, uh, which I'm excited and, about. It's going to be his first sequel. I mean, and, and I'm just saying this much. The people at Pixar are master storytellers and they, their scripts go through draft after draft after draft. They, they hone their, their plots so carefully. How, how much shit that's in Tomorrowland now do you think would have been weeded out with the level of scrutiny that Pixar gives its it gives its scripts and, and its stories, a lot. Like it's it's, I mean, like when I say clumsy, I, I say that in contrast to how carefully orchestrated Pixar does the same thing. Like it, it treats the same material. It it would have been a completely different film. And honestly, with Brad with Brad Bird uh, at the helm, I think that could have actually been a really great kids movie. As it is, it's a uh, maybe above average kids film that I still wouldn't really recommend, but certainly, you know, certainly has its assets and, and definitely has more going for it than I think uh, pretty much actually, honestly, pretty much anything else that's in the theater. That's for kids right now. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Mad Max and pitch perfect two aren't exactly the, the most kid friendly titles. Out there. I, I'd probably call, mm, I don't know. Is pitch perfect two better than Tomorrowland? I, oh, I, I haven't seen it, so I wouldn't know. But I'm surprised no, I, you wouldn't instantly say yes. No, it 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 is. It is. I, I as a whole, it's better. I just it, Tomorrowland tries so is so much more inventive, you know. Yeah, and there are a lot of really solid nuggets in here that I that I clung to. That's cling the thing. To. Like this is the work of a real filmmaker that's gone a bit off the tracks. Like it's like yeah. that, Pitch Perfect Two is a well made comedy film that's meant to cash in on the success of a previously beloved uh, yeah, you know film so I mean th- th- Tomorrowland I think has way more good stuff behind way more, it's much more ambitious it's much more ambitious and genuine um, but uh, it kind of makes me sad to, to admit that as a whole Pitch Perfect 2 is a better film but, uh, <laughs> Aww, uh, sorry Brad Bird yeah, I will watch Incredible Brad Bird uh, keep doing what you're doing man I mean yeah don't do work it, with David Lindoff anymore. Do it with Lindoff. better do it with better scripts and uh, uh, keep casting Britt Robertson. Or hell, maybe she can get cast in other uh, in other films. I think she's great. Um, yeah, you I'll, use George Clooney pretty well too, actually. Oh, I, I, I was never yeah, annoyed by him. I, which, come on, he was not. This is a step above his gravity role. Would yes. You admit? Like, no, I, I I was annoyed by I was way annoyed by George Clooney in Gravity because he was. He was that same like smarmy guy he always is. He was everyone's and... stereotype of who Brad Pitt is. God damn it, Mike. <laughs>